2: Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik.
3: Good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hebkett. So, uh, after the bank holiday, of course, it's back to work, back to politics and parliament, and also back to classrooms.
2: Yeah, after a few weeks of talking about this pretty much non-stop every day, schools in England and Wales start reopening. You've got the odd inset day here and there, but the majority of them heading back. A crucial test, of course, for the government, which has made a big thing out of this. Boris Johnson called it a national priority. And then we've got some economic figures as well. The Centre for Economics and Business Research saying that reopening schools could provide a 3.3% boost to the economy. This is the equivalent to £70 billion. And at this point, Caroline, every penny counts, right?
3: Absolutely. I'm going to be breathing a huge sigh of relief on Thursday and keeping my fingers (laughs) crossed that the teachers can actually keep those lovely children in school and healthy because this is a major, major challenge. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is already facing basically a public inquiry over his handling of the coronavirus crisis. Then last month saw the chaos over assessing school pupils uh, and their um, non-exam grades, I suppose, if you can call it that. And that cost toys in the polls. And now at the same time, you've got Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, who has said actually that next year's GCSE and A level exams could be pushed back in order to give pupils that bit more time to study the syllabus. Here's what Schools Minister Nick Gibb had to say.
2: In mid-June, uh, he wrote to uh, the regulator asking, directing them to look into the possibility of delaying exams. We have to take into account the other nations of the UK, Northern Ireland and Wales that use the GCSE and A-levels. But it is something that we are looking at. And then Labour's rolled into this as well. They're calling for tests to move from May to either June or July. The Shadow Education Minister, Toby Perkins, says it's the least worst option. We need to uh, ensure that this generation of students have got challenges that no other generation have ever faced, are given every last chance, every possible chance to get the best results they can.
3: So they have both sides of it. But it's not just schools, as I mentioned, reopening today. Uh, it's MPs who are also returning to the House of Commons following the summer recess. Head lies a very busy parliamentary agenda where education and coronavirus and the impact undoubtedly will continue to dominate. Well, joining us today is David Gork, who is the former Justice Secretary and also Conservative MP. He's now head of public policy at McFarlane's. Thank you so much for being with us, David. Really good to have you on the programme. Look, first of all, on the big issue of the day, how do you rate this government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic?
1: I think it's been mixed, in all honesty. I think one does have to have a degree of sympathy with the government. This is an enormous task, um, hugely challenging, unprecedented circumstances. And very often the government was left with a range of unpalatable options. There wasn't an easy way in which one could address it any of this all the decisions have been difficult and yeah, you know, there are some inevitable difficulties with this um i think on the other hand you know they have been slow to get the sort of testing regime up and running i don't think they grasped that as quickly as they could clearly there was a lot of confusion over the examination results and how they were going to deal with that Uh, And and I think there is a bit of a sense that, you know, frankly, this hasn't played to Boris Johnson's strengths. You know, he he is an ebullient, optimistic, um, big picture figure. Um, He's not someone who's necessarily, you know, kind of at his best diving into the details and, you know, giving the impression that he's completely on top of everything. And and, and that, I think, has been difficult for the government. Um, But you can look at some things which there have been some real successes. I think the way that the furloughing Mm. scheme was introduced was very effective. Actually, I think the eat out to help out uh, scheme, also that Rishi has introduced, has been uh, very effective. So I think there have been some... Successes there things that have things that haven't gone wrong that could have gone wrong that tends to get missed. Yeah, you know, the welfare system has held up despite a huge surge in tax credit claims, for example. Um, well, that's a really interesting to-
2: part of it—the whole economic handle of it. I wanted to ask you, as a former chief secretary to the treasury, you spent a lot of time in the building. Um, wh- what about what happens next? We've had Steve barkley today not ruling out a corporation tax rise. The question then around how we pay for all of this—do you think that's the right approach? That Tittle-tattle that we're beginning to
1: hear? I think they do need to prepare the ground. My, my, I think it's pretty clear that there is going to be a substantial hole in the public finances. It's not about this year's borrowing. It's not about the surge caused by the COVID uh, virus this year. It, it is about the long-term scarring for the economy and increased pressures on public spending. And just to stabilise debt... Um, they are going to have to do something about the public finances. I think it's going to be hard to cut spending. As a consequence, I think taxes are going to have to rise. There's a very fine judgment as to both when you announce that and when you implement it. I don't think they need to implement anything in any great hurry, but there is a case for announcing their plan to restore the public finances to to a sound footing before very much longer. That is going to involve tax increases, but then, of course, you've got the challenge as to which taxes do you increase, and I think one concern that a lot of businesses might have is that if the approach is just going to be you know hit businesses hit entrepreneurs that you can you can damage the attractiveness of the u k as a place in which to invest um but of course, politically, that's probably the easier option to do, and there's a real trade off between. What are the right, economically, what are the right taxes to, write, to to increase and what are the taxes that politically are easier to deliver?
3: Mm, yeah, and we're going to get the budget, of course, within the next few weeks. Stephen Barclay not ruling out a rise in corporation tax. I mean, it comes as no surprise, as you've pointed out, um, that taxes are going to rise. But I guess by how much, how much is going to be squeezed out of businesses' As you say, what taxes do you see rising, and and how much, and how soon? The timeline that you mention.
1: Well, as I say, I think I'd distinguish the when do you announce this and when mm. do you implement it. And I think for implementation it could be a few years off. Um, frankly, they'll want to, you know, they'll want to get over uh, the COVID crisis. They'll want to get over, you know, what comes from Brexit. Um, But they may feel under pressure to announce the direction of travel sooner rather than later. One, because they'll want to reassure the markets that there is a plan. Secondly, um, people are going to identify the uncertainty and they're going to speculate that taxes are going to rise. And and until the government can identify which taxes are going to rise, then people are going going to fear the worst. So there is a case for setting up some sort of plan, a roadmap, for tax policy in the course of this Parliament sooner rather than later if not in you know November budget then then you know in the spring of next year I would have thought um, and you know we're probably talking about you know substantial sums of, of, of money that does need to be raised through taxes you know it could be in the region 30 40 maybe even 60 billion pounds just to stabilize the public finances It's hard it, to is
3: that a year or over several years
1: now, that, that's you know an, an, you know, an annual increase. Um, now that doesn't have to be for a few years yet, and some of this can build up over time. Uh, and what I think um, will be worrying businesses is that if the view is that they've got to kind of raise all of this money from, uh, from business or from the very wealthy, um, that is going to make the U.K. look much less competitive than it has been up until now and the reality is if you want to raise very large sums of money you've got to raise that money from very large numbers of people but that of course is you know very large numbers of voters and that's politically difficult to do and mm. how the government will resolve yeah. that when it, it tends to have an approach which is you know just to try ple- to please people um you know give people what they want um you know they're going to actually need to take some quite brave and bold decisions on how to raise and- that revenue
2: and what what about Brexit? I mean, talks have been slow. You left your party over it. Um, and we're, doesn't it doesn't look like we're going to get a deal. I mean, I don't know. You tell me, what what do you see the rest of the year looking like in terms of these Brexit talks?
1: I'm a pessimist on whether a deal could be reached. I very much hope that a deal can be reached. If it is reached, it'll be a pretty thin deal. But nonetheless, that provides the basis for you know, strengthening our relationship with the European Union in future. But I, I'm, I'm pessimistic. The reason I'm pessimistic is that I think um, the, the Conservative Party won a majority last, last year on the basis of getting Brexit done. It was a sort of strongly pro-Brexit message. It won the support of a lot of uh, people who didn't traditionally vote Conservative but believed that we should leave the European Union. And I think any sense of sort of opening up space to the sort of on the sort of Brexit wing of the government, you know, leaving space for Nigel Farage or or, or whatever, um, they will see as being politically risky. And and the basis of their success, Mm -hmm. electoral success last year, was being sort of unequivocally. The party that delivered on the 2016 referendum result, yeah. and I think that means it's very difficult for the government to show flexibility on this issue of state aid and mm-hmm. you know, the level playing field provisions. And I don't see the European Union being prepared to concede on, on this point. So, although it is still possible that you know both sides find some kind of accommodation, frankly, there ought to be a compromise on this that is available. I don't see the willingness coming from the British government to do
4: that. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. Dot
2: com. Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And Caroline, we start with
3: a new appointment. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Boris Johnson has named the number 10 official Simon Case uh, to be the new head of the UK Civil Service. Case is a member of the Prime Minister's inner circle. It comes, of course, after Sir Mark Sedwell quit the role following reports of tensions between him and members of the Prime Minister's team over the government's handling of uh, coronavirus. I suspect you all know uh, which individual members within the Prime Minister's team uh, uh, were perhaps the most difficult Uh, but interesting really that Simon Case is kind of being talked about as quite an unusual appointment because he's only recently even joined number 10, spent a couple of years as the private secretary to Prince William so it's a bit of an unusual uh, appointment.
2: Yeah, he's got a bit of history with former Prime Ministers, but it's the general backdrop, isn't it, of another Johnson ally coming into the civil service. Mm. You've got people like Jonathan Slater, the most senior civil servant in the Department for Education, who left Philip Rutman at the Home Office who had that big bust up with uh, with Pretty Patel. So a lot of bad blood between the civil service and number 10 at the moment. And this seems like, I don't know, perhaps a, perhaps a way of, of making things a little bit easier if you have somebody who is uh, more sympathetic to the government. But many views abound on that issue. Uh, and then we've got the story from the head of British Airways, the parent company IAG, um, the head of which, Willie Walsh, is uh, saying that Portugal should not be back on the UK's quarantine list. It'll be more chaos and hardship for travellers. He's hit against the idea of imposing quarantine measures of Brits who come back from Portugal because of this rise in Covid cases. The rate now per 100,000 people in Portugal is 21.1 and the threshold for the UK to consider triggering these quarantines is 20. So it does pass the test. And of course, there are many interests at play as well here. If you're an airline boss, you probably don't want these quarantines.
3: No, absolutely not. And of course, uh, there are dozens of countries now on this uh, uh quarantine list for the UK. So there's, you know, slight concerns about just the number of places that are virtually impossible to travel to and from. Uh, Meanwhile, just lastly, on the Brexit front, Downing Street has hit back after France accused the UK government of deliberately stalling Brexit trade negotiations. So the French Foreign Minister, Jean-Yves Le Drian, said that negotiations were not advancing because of the intransigent and unrealistic attitude of the UK. London has hit back, of course, accusing Brussels of making it unnecessarily difficult to make progress. Hmm, I wonder why things have not progressed Uh, with all that. uh, Britain and the European Union remain deadlocked in their talks on future trade ties with just four months until the transition period ends. And everybody knows that actually the EU wants it done even sooner than that by October.
2: Yeah, David Gort telling us just a moment ago he's not wildly uh, he's not wildly optimistic, I should say, around something coming together. Uh, but it's also back to work today, isn't it, for MPs? The House of Commons returning after the summer recess. Lots of MPs calling on the government to extend the hybrid parliament. That's the system that's allowed them to work from home, take part in proceedings via video link. That is uh, scheduled to end. It's sort of an automatic thing, and then they have to to re anoint it, as it were. The government urging lots of MPs though to get back to Westminster, lead by example. They want to get people genuinely back into their workplaces. Uh, so for more about all of this, we're going to speak to Hannah White, Deputy Director at the Institute for Government. Hannah, this hybrid parliament then, it feels like a little bit early to be thinking about ending it, but I understand the concerns of the government here.
5: We already bear in mind, we've already taken a step back from the sort of full hybrid parliament that was introduced originally. So originally, uh, when MPs came back in April after the Easter recess, they were able to vote remotely uh, using a new system which had been set up. But that was abolished after the Whitson recess, so after only about a month. Uh, we were in a position where it was possible for uh, MPs who were shielding, who had um, you know reasons connected with coronavirus uh, that they couldn't get to Westminster, were able to participate in some sorts of business uh, from their constituencies. Uh, but yes, it's very much up to the government now to say, are they going to have the opportunity to extend that or are they really going to put that pressure on MPs and say, well, if you don't come to Westminster, you won't be joining in?
3: Yeah, look, over the summer, there were some eyebrows raised, were there not, in this time of pandemic um, and so many issues facing the nation that Parliament actually just took a long recess anyway. What is your assessment of how well Parliament and then separately the government are actually functioning right now?
5: Well... Um in terms of Parliament, I mean you do have to remember, and I you know I sound like an apologist, but you know MPs are still often working when they're in their constituencies. Mm-hmm. And one thing we've definitely been hearing is that MPs have had a massive caseload connected with coronavirus. They've had all the queries from their constituencies uh, constituencies and their constituents, all the problems which have arisen uh, with different ways in which policies have worked out, those have been raised with MPs, and MPs have been raising those with uh, ministers. But you don't see that when Parliament's not sitting. On the other hand, uh, you're quite right to say both over over the Easter recess and over the summer recess, you know, major decisions are being taken um, and if Parliament's not there, those can't be discussed. But then again, it's very much up to the government. Uh, The government is the only sort of entity which can ask Parliament to be recalled. Uh, MPs can't do it off their own bat. So even if they wanted to be there scrutinising the government, they can't make the government do that. And I think that's a, that's actually a problem with the way Parliament works, which we ought to rectify.
2: But given the circumstances, I mean, a hybrid Parliament makes sense for health grounds, but isn't there something that's lost in terms of holding the government to account? If you can't be there as a Parliamentarian in Westminster having those face-to-face conversations, is there a risk that you're not able to do your job properly?
5: I think there really is. And I think, you know, regardless of what happens with the hybrid system, in terms of the physical chamber... The way they set it up uh, to get around social distancing uh, requirements to meet the social distancing requirements is that only 50 MPs at a time can be in the chamber. If you discontinue the uh, hybrid uh, system, that actually makes it worse because it means that of all the 650, you know, only uh, 50 at a time will be able to be in there talking to the government. Lots of backbenchers feel that they've got much less control, much less ability to sort of go in and and challenge when, when they want to. So actually, you know, it would make it while social distancing continues to be a factor, discontinuing the the hybrid uh, provision makes it makes uh, fewer MPs able to participate, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, they might be in Westminster. They won't be there in the chamber asking those questions.
3: Yeah. Well, speaking of control, what about party control because obviously whipping is uh, incredibly important doing that remotely is quite difficult how do you assess party discipline right now
5: so i think that's a major factor that was the major factor really although it wasn't articulated as such uh why the government did away with remote voting because they had a couple of scares over things where they weren't actually expecting small rebellions that happened nothing where a government lost a vote Um, but where MPs have listened from their constituencies to to what was going on uh, and were persuaded in the course of a debate that they were going to vote differently to how the whips had intended them to vote. Um, And so that was actually a bit of a shock, I think, to some of the uh, whips. So they definitely find it harder when they don't have MPs sort of creeping through the division lobbies, uh, being able to eyeball them, being able to have that sense of what the conversations are going on in the corridors and whether people might be sort of cooking up different plans to the, to the ones the, Wh- the Whips have in mind. The Whips' job is definitely harder when MPs aren't in Westminster. And I think, you know, the government said a lot, you know, about wanting to encourage people back to work and the MPs setting a good example, but party discipline is another strong motivation from the government's point of view.
2: Well, there's one argument that goes that the, the damage is already done in that you have this huge 2019 intake and they were only in Parliament physically for, what, the best past of three months. And we know there are a lot of WhatsApp groups between them. There are a lot of shared interests, those that came from the so-called Blue Wall. Are, are they now unwhippable, given that they've had this opportunity to go off and become independent and, and, and do their own thing? But It's certainly interesting how...
5: A whole cohort who come in uh, in these unusual circumstances might shape their working practices and, as you say, the the way they communicate with their colleagues completely differently to their uh, immediate predecessors. I don't think they'll be unwhippable, but I do think that you know, although you know, we all think you know, Boris Johnson has a big majority actually in these circumstances where you know the government wants to get a lot of legislation through, there's Brexit legislation, there's all the domestic stuff they want to do from their uh, manifesto, there could be further coronavirus legislation required. It's a packed schedule. And I think backbenchers are acutely aware now that actually they've got quite a lot of power. Um, and if the government wants to get all that legislation through... Smart MPs are going to be able to exert pressure at at key moments to achieve things they want in that legislation if the government wants to press on as fast as it seems to want to do.
3: Uh, Okay, what is your thought then um, on the other story that we mentioned about uh, Simon Case being the new head of the UK Civil Service? Um, I mean, again, it's it's a bit of an unusual appointment and it's very much um, someone from the Prime Minister's inner circle taking this big, big role... How do you view it? Well, I
5: think that's right. I think that, you know, some of the other candidates who were spoken about were less in the prime minister's fold and more in the fold of other, um, you know, Michael Gove or or other people. So I think it's interesting that the the prime minister has gone for someone who he personally has a strong relationship with. I mean, Simon Case clearly has lots of central government sort of relevant experience. He hasn't Mm. run a Whitehall department um, himself as such. I think he'll be very good at the fixer side. Um, but I think that the uh, thing that remains to be seen is how he manages to bring all the other permanent secretaries with him. Whitehall's known you know, for its federalism. It's easy to sort of uh, for, for permanent secretaries to consent and evade, as the term goes, to say yes, yes, but actually not actually do what the centre is asking them to do. Um, so the, the key thing to watch is going to be the extent to which he can extend Prime Minister's writ it out into Whitehall and achieve these things which you need the whole of Whitehall to pull together to achieve in terms of civil service reform, in terms of you know changing things in the way public like, Cummings has been really uh, clear that he wants to do
1: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.